We are told that the angels, when they came to Bethlehem, came singing songs of praise. And they said, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Earlier in the week leading up to that scene, the angel Gabriel had come to Joseph and promised that Mary will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus For he will save his people from their sins. The angels promised that Jesus was to be a savior king. A savior from the line of David. A king who would come. And the question in the gospels is what kind of king would Jesus be? Would Jesus be a king who would march his armies into Jerusalem? And raise the flag of the nation of Israel? Would he be a king who would usher in a new era of morality and wise teaching? What kind of king would Jesus be? Well, long before the promises given to Mary and Joseph, God promised through another king, King David, the greater king's son, Jesus That the promised king would be a suffering king. A king who will come to die for the sins of his people and bring deliverance through his suffering. In the month of December, Pastor Rod and I are going to preach a number of sermons from the Psalms. All throughout the year of 2020, uh, we have filled in through various sermon series by preaching in the Psalms. We want to demonstrate to you through these psalms that the Messiah was long foretold. In fact, the psalm we're going to consider today was written some thousand years before Jesus came in Bethlehem. Jesus coming to this earth and dying for the sins of his people was not an accident. It was a part of God's eternal plan to redeem his broken creation. A world that had Fallen apart because of our sin, God had purposed to redeem for his glory. And this morning we're going to consider Psalm 22. Perhaps one of the most famous messianic psalms in all of the Psalter. One of the most quoted by Jesus and his disciples in the New Testament. Psalm 22. The historical context of this psalm is that it's a psalm of David. We are told that David, the king of Israel, crafted this psalm together. And it's a part of a collection of psalms in the Psalter uh, that is the book of David. Uh, Some of the earliest psalms that David wrote. And and while there's no real historical event that seems to be the context of why David wrote the psalm, At some point, David had suffered. And and as we know the life of David, in many ways David suffered in various points of life. Whether he was in the court of Saul, he suffered under Saul's craziness. Or whether he was the king or when he was on the run from Absalom. uh, King David often suffered. Suffered for his own sins or suffered because of the sins of others. In the biblical sense, the fulfillment of this psalm comes in Christ and If you were to read Matthew chapter 27, where Matthew 
uh, begins to deal with the crucifixion of Christ, you will find this psalm on the lips of Jesus. Beginning with the crucifixion, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And ending the psalm with, it is finished, it is done. Well, this is how this psalm begins and ends a psalm of suffering, a song of lament for the anguish of his soul. Well, I'm going to begin reading in Psalm chapter 22. If you haven't turned there already, it's found on page 457 in the Pew Bibles. I do invite you to open that and have that open. We're going to consider a number of points in this psalm this morning. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the, from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and Roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You, you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but it has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. 
All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Prosperity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it, or he has finished it. Friends, as we read this psalm and think about its meaning, we see in this text that the Lord uses the sufferings of King Jesus to bring about our rescue from sin. And results in our eternal worship of God. We see in this story or in this particular chapter that God is glorified and the saints are thankful for the sufferings of King Jesus for our sins. This morning, our psalm divides easily into two sections, verses 1 through 21 and verses 22 through 31. In verses 1 through 21, we saw the anguish of King David. We we saw the the sufferings, the, the, the anguish of his soul as he cried out to God. But he didn't end the psalm there. He didn't conclude with, that's it, I'm dead. But we see in verse 22 a, a transition to thanksgiving, to joy. His anguish led to joy. His sufferings led to thanksgiving. And this morning we see that that Jesus' suffering leads to our thanksgiving. That the sufferings of Christ lead us to glorify God and to give thanks for Christ. And so this morning I want us to consider these two responses. Namely, glorifying God for the sufferings of Christ, for the the anguish of Christ's suffering. And secondly, that we are to give thanks, that you are to give thanks for the sufferings of Christ. We see in verses 1 through 21 that we are to glorify God for the sufferings of Christ. We see a number of things that David highlights. And if you've noticed when I was reading, I tried to highlight the sort of back and forth let me show it to you again. Look, look with me here. Show you a bit of the way he structured this. Verses 1 and 2, we see is set in apposition to verses 3 through 5. Verses 1 and 2, he cries out. In verses 3 through 5, he reflects on some theology about God. In verses 6 through 8, he cries out again. And then in verses 9 through 11, some more theology About God. Then again in verses 12 through 18, he cries out about his circumstances. And then in verses 19 through 21, some more theology about God. So as we see this, we see first the, the anguish of David's sufferings. And more importantly, the anguish of the cross. In verses 1 through 2, we see the forsaken king. He cries out to God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you not saved me? 
David here describes his situation as one of forsakenness, abandonment. He feels that God has abandoned him in his affliction. He feels that God is far from him. And of course, Jesus uses this this same psalm, perhaps committing it to memories. He's praying through this psalm as he's suffering on the cross. God, why have you abandoned me? Of course, God never abandoned his son. The father never abandoned Christ on the cross. He never left him there. But he felt left. He felt abandoned. He felt as if God had sort of packed up and went home. In verse 2, he describes the extent of his abandonment. Notice what he says. I cry by day and by night, but you do not answer and I find no rest. It was a restlessness in his forsakenness. He, he felt like God wasn't ever going to hear him again. He cried day and night continually before God. He was a forsaken king. But not only was he a forsaken king, we see that in his anguish, he was a mocked king. Look with me at verses 6 through 8. Notice here that he was mocked. He describes himself as a worm and not a man. In the Old Testament, this language of a worm is often a description of the perpetual nature of death. Let me say that again. The worm was described, describes a very graphic picture in your mind, right? Where the, Jesus uses this language, right? Where the worm does not die. What does he mean? Well, he means that a body generates a significant amount of food for a worm as it decomposes. Such that the worm has so much food, because there's so many dead bodies, that it won't die because it won't ever run out of food. A pretty gross picture, right? David here is describing the picture of death that is before him. I'm, I'm a worm and not a man. I am dead. And he describes how he is a mocked king. He scorned despised all who see me mock me they make their mouths at me it's a sort of a, a, a picture of they curse me they say things about me they wag their heads perhaps maybe a way we might point our fingers or roll our eyes a picture of mockery verse 8 He's mocked for his trust in the Lord. Of course, these words were, were upon Jesus, right? On the cross. We were told in Matthew chapter 27 that, that the crowds would come by and, and mock Jesus. Hey, he healed blind people. Hey, he made the lame to walk. He can't even help himself. What, what, kind, of, what kind of king is this? He's a helpless king. They, the world mocked Jesus, because he wasn't the king they wanted. It wasn't the king they expected. And frankly, if we think about leaders, we want leaders who are powerful, right? Who, who aren't weak. If you pay any attention to the way politicians often talk, they want to ensure that they are never seen as weak. They never want to be seen. That, 
That was why, just a number of months ago, why it was so serious, all politics aside, seriously, from a global perspective, for your safety, it was a big deal when the president got COVID. That was a big deal because, you see, there were world dictators who saw that as weakness, as an opportunity to protect uh, to perhaps attack America because their leader was was sick. And of course, other presidents before uh, had to uh, maybe lie about being sick because they wanted to ensure, right? And so our leaders are, are to be strong. And here we see our king is being mocked for his weakness. But not only was he mocked with the voices of men, he suffered at the hands of men. In verses 12 through 18, we see a picture of the suffering of the king. It says that he describes the situation as bulls surrounding him. Uh, you don't mess with bulls. They, they'll kill you, all right? Just right? trust Scott. He'll tell you, right? Don't, don't mess with a bull. And he describes a picture here where there is a massive bull surrounding him where he will die. Then he uses the proverbial language here in verse 13 of a ravening and roaring lion, a hungry lion ready to to devour him. He goes on to describe uh, the condition of his own physical body. I poured out like water. He was so weak. Have you ever watched someone faint? They're like they're just like liquid, right? They just like, so Jesus is just, or what David is describing here is a picture of weakness, of physical weakness, where he's just like wax that's melting. He has no strength. His muscles are beginning to decompose. My strength is dried up. My tongue sticks to my jaws. I lay in the dust of death. He's at the end of the road. He goes on in verses 16 through 18 to describe further the picture. Here it is the dogs that are encompassing him. He says, I can count my bones. He he was so famished that his bones were protruding from his body. They stare and gloat over me. They They divide my garments and they cast lots for my clothing. Of course, we see that fulfilled there in the cross in Matthew chapter 27. The picture of the anguish of the cross is one of forsakenness, one of mockery, and one of suffering. And it was all laid at the hands of the king by God himself. Look with with me here in verse 15. Notice who David attributes the suffering to. The end of verse 15, you lay me in the dust of death. He accuses the father here of laying him in the dust of death. He he says that he attributes all of his sufferings and his anguish to God himself. But he does not believe that God has abandoned him. For he, throughout this, as we look now at the other side, has continually begun to reflect in the midst of his anguish of the faithfulness of God to him. And particularly the Lord's covenant faithfulness. Look here in a number of things. Verses 3 through 5. You are holy, enthroned on the praise of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. If you are uh, an English major, you will notice in there that every one of the verbs were in the past tense. 
What is David's point? David here is saying that the Lord has always been our trust. He is appealing to the faithfulness of God. He says, look, you are enthroned. The fathers trusted you. You delivered. You cried. They cried. You rescued. They trusted. You did not put them to shame. In other words, David is appealing to the character of God. He's reflecting on who God is. What gave David confidence in the midst of his suffering, what gave the Lord Jesus Christ confidence in the midst of his suffering, was the faithfulness of his father. God is faithful. God is faithful. Not only had God been faithful uh, to the people of Israel, but David here in verses 9 through 11 says that God has always cared for me personally. Notice what he says, that you are he who took me from the womb and you made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb, you have been my God. In other words, David's saying, there's not been a day in my life when you have not cared for me. David goes all the way back to the beginning of his life, as far as he can remember. God had always cared for him personally. But not only had God had always cared, in verses 19 through 21, we see that God had always saved him. That God had always saved him. Look what he writes here in verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Notice he describes God as his help. The only reason he could describe God as his help is if God had helped him in his past. And of course, God had helped David many times, many times in his life, whether it had been when David was a shepherd and the the lions literally came after his sheep and and David had ripped one in Or later when, when Saul was constantly throwing spears at David's head and David miraculously escaped them. Or, or later in life, when Absalom, his son, attacked the city and dethroned David, God was with him. David goes on in verses 20 and 21 to ask God's deliverance, deliver from the sword my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of wild oxen. David's confidence was in the deliverance that God had already demonstrated. And as we think about the anguish of Christ and the goodness of God and the sufferings of Christ, friends, as we reflect on what Christ suffered, this picture, friends, let me just encourage you to think through Psalm 22 this afternoon. Read through And think at a greater length the depiction of suffering and anguish and sorrow. Yet the faithfulness of the father to even allow his son to suffer. Friends, it reveals to us the depth of God's love for us in Christ. And do you believe that God has always cared for you? That he will always care for you? You see what David did in the midst of suffering when when he was he was tempted to doubt God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I I feel abandoned. I feel alone. I feel that my my prayers are just hitting the ceiling and bouncing right back down. What did he do? 
Did he throw a pity party? Did he wallow in his tears? No, he reflected on some theology about God's character. Friend, in the midst of any affliction you face, whether you're currently going through it or whether you're going to go through it, remember to think about God's character. See, the only thing that will bring clarity to your mind and settle your anxious soul is some theology about God and particularly his character. You ever wonder why we read the statements of faith that we read? We don't do it because, you know, we're checking off some religious box. We're doing it in order to ingrain in our minds theology about who God is and who we are. Because so often we are tempted by the enemy to doubt this truth that God has always cared for you. That you are created in the image of God, therefore you are special in his sight. You are valuable because you are a person. And more than that, if you are a brother or sister, if you are a son or a daughter of God, you are all the more. We see also in this anguish of the cross and the sufferings of Christ, the seriousness of our sin. The way the Puritans would say it, the the sinfulness of sin. The sinfulness of sin. Brothers and sisters, as we see the sufferings of Christ, the very fact Jesus Christ had to come to rescue us demonstrates the depth of our problem and the seriousness of human sin. The sufferings of Christ remind us of the vileness of our own sin. He was on the cross. He he was dying that gruesome death Because of your sin. Because you love sin. Because I love sin. Because I want to live life my way. In the words of Frank Sinatra. Because you did it your way. Because you chose to do what you wanted. Jesus Christ suffered. And this should cause us to glory. Glory in the truth that that while we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. Jesus died for a bunch of rebels. A bunch of men and women who didn't want him to die for them. We didn't want Jesus. We didn't want to go God's way. But God in his merciful grace rescued us from ourselves. Friends, this is a warning, I think, also for those who are not in Christ. It's a warning to those who are apart from Christ this morning because the sufferings described here are yet but a glimpse of what you, you, you alone will endure forever. Because you see, if Jesus doesn't suffer for you, then you must suffer for you. So the gospel works both ways. 
You either believe that Jesus Christ has satisfied the Father's wrath or you yourself choose to satisfy the Father's wrath. And guess what, friend? You will never satisfy God's wrath. That is why Jesus describes hell as a place where the worm does not die and where the flame is not quenched. What a picture of hell, of your future, where the flame is never quenched. Never. The fire never goes out. Burning perpetually for. For trillions of years. Flesh rotting. Worms feasting. Friends, that is a deplorable place. And that does not need to be your future. If you would only turn from your sins and trust in Christ. And stop living life your way. And go God's new way in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus Christ died a vicarious death for you in your place. So that that deplorable picture, the, the, the vile picture of suffering, of anguish and sorrow does not have to be yours. What we see also in these first 20 verses, the sovereign goodness of God to allow his saints to suffer. Friend, hear that again. The sovereign goodness of God in suffering. You know, often we don't string together words like sovereign and good and suffering together. We often, in conversation, don't put the word suffering and good in the same conversation. But in the context of Scripture, the saints of God have always seen God as sovereign, meaning He's in control. He is a king who rules and reigns. In our current climate, no global pandemic surprised God. In fact, the way I understand our Bible is that God is in control. That no virus is in control. God is in control. Always has been in control. That should bring comfort to us. It should remind us in the midst of suffering and sorrow and pain and anguish that God is still good. You see, what the enemy is going to tempt you is for you to curse God's goodness and rightness and control. Oh, God's really not in control. If God was really in control, he would not allow this to happen. Really? Well, if God was so in control, why did he allow his son to die? Perhaps it was that he purposed it before the foundation of the world. And perhaps he's purposed your suffering for your good and for his glory. God does all things for his glory. And as Christians, we are to glorify God for the sufferings of Christ and for our own sufferings to find his goodness. It's a part of growing in our faith and trusting that God is still good. 
and grounding ourselves in the good and rich theology, the truths about God's character. This is how we glorify him. His suffering, though, leads to our thanksgiving, does it not? I say it often and I'll say it again. As Christians, we must be the most thankful people in all of the cosmos because we understand what we deserve and what we receive. We deserve death. We deserve the worms. We deserve the flames. But instead, what do we get? But we get the celestial city. We get eternity at the throne of God. We get the marriage supper of the Lamb. We, we get a city without walls, where, where, without sun and moon, where, where, the, where God dwells with us forever. We get eternal life where what we deserve is death. David here describes three types of thanksgiving that results. Very quickly, we'll look at them. In verses 22 through 24, David says that Thanksgiving is going to come from me, he says. There's a personal Thanksgiving that results when God delivers his people. In verses 25 and 26, we see there's a, a communal aspect of Thanksgiving, a, a congregational Thanksgiving. And finally, we see that, that through the sufferings of Christ, there is a global, a national Thanksgiving. Let's look at these very quickly. Verses 22 and 24. David says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. Now, just a little clue. When you're reading your Psalms, David will do this and other Psalms will do this as well. You'll find the tense of the verbs will change from past, present to future. And this is what he does here. That's how we know he's now moved on to a new section because he's not talking about the present anymore. He's not talking about the past anymore. He's talking about what's going to happen now. He says, I will tell, of my, tell to my brothers. I'm going to tell what? I'm going to tell your name. Where is he going to do it? In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Just minutes ago, where was David? He was dying. He was dead. Just minutes ago, where was Christ? He was on the cross, bleeding and dying and crying out. There's a confident hope in the future that Thanksgiving will come from David. He says, you who fear the Lord, praise him. He, he's here inviting the congregation. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in all of him, all you offspring of, of Israel. There's a sort of uh, David here is, is inviting others into his personal thanksgiving. And here's the theology. Verse 24. For he, that is God, has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Someone asked you, did God abandon his son on the cross? Read verse 24 for them. The father never abandoned the son. He never turned away from the son. He never left him hanging on the cross. No, there was a confident power at play. No, he did not despise. No, he did not abhor. He did not turn away, but he delivered. As he delivered David, so he delivered Christ, and so he will deliver us. And that leads to our thanksgiving. God did not leave you in your sin. 
that God will not leave you in your suffering right now. You might say, I think I'm going to suffer until I die. If you are in Christ, let, let, get this around your mind just for a second. All the sufferings of this world are temporary. They do not continue into glory. Isn't that true? Say it this way. Will you care? Whatever it is you care about, right? Whatever is causing you anxiety right now. Maybe it's the coronavirus. Maybe it's who the next president's going to be or, or wh- how he's going to lead. Maybe what's really getting you really anxious right now is your kids. Ask yourself, if you are in Christ and you were to fast forward a trillion years from now, would you really care who's in the White House? Would you really care that your car broke down this week? Would you really care that that you lost your job? All those things are important. I don't mean to diminish any one of those things. Every one of those in a temporal sense are important. But an internal perspective on those things helps you put faith in God in the midst of suffering. For God will not abandon His saints. He will not leave us nor forsake us. But we see also Thanksgiving is a corporate It's not only an individual thing, but it's a corporate activity. Look here, verses 25 and 26. For you, for from you comes my praises in the great congregation. David here envisions gathering with the nation in in Jerusalem. Where he is going to give a vow to God in the midst of that. He's going to he's going to in this worship service around the, the sacrifice a tribute, and call the congregation to thanksgiving. Brothers and sisters, as a church, we want to be regularly giving thanks. Not just merely through prayer, not merely just through words, but really, truly be thankful. Be thankful that we have four walls and a roof, that we're not in some silly tent outside. Which I guess is the same thing, but... um, To be thankful that, you know, we have the provisions to turn on lights this morning. Be thankful that we're physically able to gather this morning without fear or anxiety, without worry. We see finally here that the sufferings of Christ lead to thanksgiving in a global way. The results of the sufferings of Christ lead to thanksgiving from the nations. Look here, verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. What a picture. All the people, he says. 
In the words of Revelation 5, every tribe and tongue and nation will gather around the throne. You want some encouragement in the midst of a global pandemic? Read the book of Revelation. Seriously. You might think, well, I get, don't get in the weeds in the book. But look at this reality that Jesus is coming again and he's going to gather the nations and they are going to worship at his throne. All the ends of the earth. What hope? This is what gives us hope in our evangelism. What gives us hope to give to to an organization like the International Mission Board because God is at work calling the nations unto himself through the sufferings of Christ. That the sufferings of Christ result in not death, not sadness, but in glory and praise of the nations. Friends, do you regularly and consistently give Thanks to God for your life in Christ. So let me just commend some personal reflection today on what Christ has done in your life and ways that you can be thankful. You might say, oh, I don't know where to start. Well, we'll start with the fact that you were rescued from your sin. Imagine what your life would be like if Jesus hadn't stopped you on your road to... Well, I mean, um, imagine what Jesus, what life would have been like apart from Jesus. How sad this season would truly be if you didn't have the hope of eternal life. If you want to know what that looks like, you need a little dose of reminder of what it looked like to have life without Jesus. Just turn along the 11 o'clock news tonight and see a world without hope. I'm serious. And if Christian, that's how you're acting right now, get your Bible out and read it. Because you should have hope in the midst of this world. Friend, are you you confident in in the Lord's power to deliver? I want you to see something in this section again. I I didn't really emphasize, but I want to emphasize it right now. In the I will statements, he says, I will, I will, I will, I will, over and over again. Notice here in verse 26, the afflicted shall eat. And those who seek him shall praise the Lord. All the ends of the earth shall. You might say, well, that's some old English word. I shall not use that word today at all. That, that verbal idea is a confident assertion that, it, that reality will come. This is going to happen. This isn't just like, hey, I predict, I'm predicting the future. No, this is David saying, this is going to happen. I am telling you, I am, I am revealing to you the future. Friend, do you have confidence in the Lord's power to deliver? That it shall happen? That this world shall end in the way the Lord has purposed and planned. Do you have a hopeful outlook in the midst of your present suffering? Again, we don't want to diminish suffering. We're not about just sort of thinking it away and just putting it out of our minds and avoiding the conversation of suffering. But understand in the midst of suffering, there is tremendous hope that God is in control and his purposes shall be fulfilled. Do you believe 
The truth that we see in this passage that he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Friend, he will never abandon you. The promise of Scripture is that the Lord will not abandon his people to destruction. And do you find your faith resting in the truth that he rules over the nations? That should inform your understanding of the way you read the news, the way you understand world events, the way you even understand the way this community behaves and acts. Friends, the final word of this psalm, verse 31, is a confident hope that he has done it. That it's finished, that it's done. This is the confidence that we shall have. That nothing shall stop the church. That the church of the Lord Jesus Christ will continue to march forward until the Lord returns. Generations are to come and the church shall still be here. A generation yet unborn will be born and will praise God and will occupy the church of the Lord Jesus Christ until Jesus comes again. Brothers and sisters, it is our hope and it is our glory in Christ for his sufferings and our thankfulness that our king would come, clothe himself in human flesh to die the death we deserve, that we might have life and have it everlasting. Let's pray. Father, we do pray this morning that we might know you and the power of your gospel. We pray even now, as we have the opportunity to think and reflect even further upon the sufferings of Christ and his body, which was broken for us, his his blood, which was literally pouring out from his body on the cross for our sins, for our iniquities. Father, forgive us, I pray. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sanctify us by your spirit. And come, Lord Jesus, to glorify us that we might dwell with you forever. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.